Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Average Sleep Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Lowe, and today is a solo episode, which means there's no guests on the pod today, purely because I want to cover the Average to Elite Physique project that I am working on. So if you follow me on social media, you especially Instagram, you would have seen that I'm posting far more uh, about my own eating, my own training, my own lifestyle. And I've been getting numerous sort of questions surrounding this. And um, so what I thought to do today is basically, first of all, put a pen to paper for my own uh, notes and then deliver it in a form of a podcast. And not only will this give you a really good understanding of where I'm coming from, why I'm doing it, and you know some of the strategies I'm using, but as well uh, for myself, selfishly, it's just a nice uh, reflective piece, just to really sort of um, affirm why I'm doing this project. Um, so I guess, you know, wh- why am I actually doing it to start with? And uh, I'll go into my coaching uh, a little bit uh, in the pod, but um, he posted on social media before I started working with him a question and it went something along the lines of, if your clients were to see your daily routines, energy and performance over the past week, how would that make you feel? So I clearly work with athletes on the athlete coaching program. Um, and, you know, they're doing incredible things. They're pushing, they're striving to be uh, the best versions of themselves and really step their performance up another gear and to another standard. So if they were to be a fly on the wall and watch my, you know, my daily routines, energy and performance, they'd be thinking, wow, w- what's going on here? Um, so, and that really, really hit me hard. And I really sort of pushed me over the line, that key kind of question, you know, if I say, look at myself and reflect of my own, again, daily routines, it's like, dude, like you're not doing anything. Like you're literally sitting in front of a computer and that is it. You're not practicing what you preach. And that, you know, definitely kind of hit me hard. So from this, there's a clear desire to, you know, do more and be more. Sometimes you kind of just feel that, you know, you're kind of going through the motions and, you know, you could be doing a lot more and you could be achieving more and you could be getting more success in any area of your life. And sometimes, you know, from from my perspective, uh, in this goal anyway, is that a case of something like slowly building up, slowly building up, thinking about this. And then that one question popped up and it's like, right, you, know, you got me, let's go. Um, so one of the big things as well was, you know, you can't coach optimally from a place you haven't been authentically. So, you know, you really have to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk when it comes to coaching to the best of your ability. So it comes down to, again, practicing what you preach. So up until this point, the way I coach uh, athletes and still get incredible results for them was a case of looking at the research. What does the research say? And then what's my previous experiences work with previous athletes and then combining the two. But now it's a case of I can actually walk the walk I talk the talk, you know, um, and I can have far more uh, just empathy with my clients, have higher quality conversations, which is going to really drive progress far more effectively and more efficiently because this average to elite fizzy project is, by means day one, without a doubt, I would put myself as average in terms of my athletic ability. And now I'm trying to really take myself to that elite level, by means not necessarily compete, but yet anyway but um you know have that same mindset have that same training demands and really striving to be the best version of myself 
So this just leads to higher quality conversations and a better ability to coach. And, you know, I also wanted to implement performance-based nutrition. Um, you know, this is something I read about on a daily basis. I've studied how, you know, in two degrees and obviously I implement for my clients on a daily basis. So, you know, it's like, how, how good does it actually work? You know, the research says it works. Uh, speaking of clients, it says it works very, very well. So it just gave me a chance to actually try it myself. You know, if I'm doing, you know, hardly any steps a day, I'm full sloth mode. I'm not really training with intent. You know, I don't really do performance-based nutrition. Like I can't really implement it properly. But now my training demands are far higher and I'm actually really pushing for performance. It's like, okay, I can start implementing some of these strategies. And then again, it just really confirms how well they work and just further increase my buy-in and my drive to educate clients on this because I know how well it works and how much it can impact their performance. And, you know, if they're not doing this stuff, I know how much it can impair their performance, both physically and mentally. So for me, this was an absolutely massive thing. And then finally, it was a case of, you know, I need to lead from the front. Um, by all means, I work with some incredible athletes, some, you know, on the national, international level. I'm not going to be better athletes than them. But in terms of my, you know, my drive, my intent, it has to be on that same kind of level. So I can't ask them to do stuff that I haven't done myself. So I need to lead from the front and to really set an example. So I know this was going to be a, a huge journey and uh, you know a big challenge for myself going from where I started off with. And ultimately, I couldn't really do this on my own because if I could do it on my own, I would have done it already. If we kind of, um, I guess, like roll back the clock all the way to, shall I say, my fitness journey, Jersey, Jersey, uh, journey, uh, say in school, like 16, 17 year old. Um, now, I very much listened to a lot of the wrong people, read those bodybuilder magazines, like I think everybody did. Um, poor programs off the internet who are just complete sort of pseudoscience, they're full bro science, they're full of shit. And I would sort of invest uh, a lot of time and effort and sometimes money into these programs and not get any results. Um, and, you know, by all means, that is pretty disheartening. And therefore, you can develop like perhaps trust issues with people trying to tell you what to do um, because you're not going to overly buy into them. And this is perhaps why I'm now overly evidence-based because I kind of listened to all that kind of pseudoscience, that bro science when I was, um, you know, going through like my school days and even through like my, uh, my university degrees where I was studying sports nutrition, still listening to them and still not getting results. And, you know, you just feel like you got kind of lied to. And now like my, one of my biggest values are like honesty and integrity. So knowing this, it definitely took me a little bit while to find the right coach. So a coach that I know, like, and trust, and I know that they're going to have my best interest at heart. So if you've been following me for a little bit of time, you know that I would have worked with my bro, Ross, from Aesthetically Trained, who gets absolutely incredible transformational um, results. And that's exactly what we did when we were working together. Got very lean and very strong. And as you can see, um, over the last uh, few months to year, uh, when we haven't been working together, I have regressed quite considerably. And again, it shows that coaches are really needed in your life to hold you accountable and hold you to a higher standard than you hold yourself. So with the Average to Elite Physique Project, it was again, yes, getting very lean, getting very strong, but adding in this extra dimension to my overall athletic ability. 
So adding in the cardiovascular work, the endurance work to really sort of complement my leanness and my strength to become um, this elite athlete. At the moment, I'm clearly not elite. I'm not even say sub elite, but I wouldn't say that I'm average anymore. We definitely moved through this uh, progression, through this continuum. And as I mentioned, Joe Parrish, the coach's coach is helping me with this at the moment and you can be very uh, familiar with Joe from episode one of season two uh, of the podcast where he spoke about uh, the great European triathlon so it's uh, very clear and safe to say from that episode he is leading from the front his desire to do more and be more is really inspiring um, me to again do more and be more and improve my lifestyle and improve my intent and focus on my training and build this kind of master plan for this three-dimensional um, athletic performance development. So without further ado, let's get into the first two phases of the Average to Elite Physique project. If we think of like uh, where I am so far, basically there's been two phases. Um, first phase was very much a fatless phase and then second phase was the the big kind of rebuild so phase one is a case of starting in mid uh, lockdown one um, safe to say that I was average yeah I think uh, pretty much in terms of all like the assessments that I did prior to starting with Joe is the case of on a scale of like one to ten how did you score on XYZ and it's a case of like fives down the board. Um, so yeah, very much average and body composition was average. Performance, to be honest, was sub-average. Um, and, you know, it just wasn't really in a great place in the slightest. So in terms of perhaps some stats, it was a case of like starting off at 77 kilo uh, and then slightly slightly chunky, should we say, um, full-on sloth mode. On average, you know, I was doing about 3,000 steps a day, which is an absolute joke. And to be honest, it became kind of a joke and I kind of normalized it. I remember having a conversation with a few of the guys and um, it's like, oh, how many steps you done today? And it's like, oh, I done 1,800, ha, ha, ha. It's like, no, it just became like a joke and we kind of normalized it. And, you know, that is, that's not good at all. Doing 1,800 steps a day is not good in the slightest. So... Uh, that was obviously like a big thing we had to work on um and you know like i mentioned like i was just going through the phases with training and tracking like i track my food every day because it's just one of those things the habit is just i just did and training you know it was just lackluster there's no focus there's no intent it's just kind of ticking the boxes like i was very consistent with training but it was just a case of i wasn't progressing anyway because i was doing the same thing over and over wasn't looking at progressive overload um and ultimately, like, if you're not progressively overloading what you do through your training, you're not going to see results. Uh, it doesn't matter how many sort of uh, vegetables or protein you have per day, like, ultimately, you're going to stay the same. Um, start off, um, the program was, was working on about sort of 3,000 calories a day on average. So given the fact that I was 77 kilo, very sedentary, full-on sloth, um, 3,000 steps a day, 3,000 calories is, was pretty high to be fair. So the main kind of things of phase one was very much like an MOT, just tidying up the rig, should we call it. Um, so first thing was, was this like anti-sloth mission of, right, let's get from 3,000 steps a day all the way up to 10,000 steps. And by all means, that was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Like, I remember like 
my legs were tired. Oh, I was getting blisters in my feet from just like literally walk around the block is an absolute, um, is absolute disaster in terms of how unconditioned I was to any form of um, activity and movement. It was crazy. And I was very much a wake up call of like, wow, I have a long, long, long way to go here. Um, and again, it's just getting that back, uh, that love and joy back for my training, training with real focus and intent. I'm really just sort of building like solid work capacity, this really solid foundation. Um, at the time in mid-lockdown, I was uh, training in the anabolic kitchen, which is my kitchen, which has uh, had a couple of weights and a couple of bands. I had two dumbbells that could go up to 20 kilos or one dumbbell could go up to 30 kilos. Is those old school uh, spin lock York dumbbells that you got from Argos when you were 16, probably one of the best investments I've uh, made because they've stuck with me 15 years later and they're still going strong. So they came in handy. So we actually had a fair bit to get through in the training as well, doing a lot of like nasty, so like uh, work capacity based stuff, looking at blood flow restriction training because we had minimal kind of loading through the lower body and stuff. So it was a very much a case of like, what have you got and what can we do? So the mission was still a sh- still the same, but we just had to build a plan based on what we had available. So what do we what do we have? What exercise can we do? And then how can we get the most out of this? Um, and as well, this case of again just serving myself first, so I could serve others better. So during this period, you know, putting a lot of you know effort and energy into myself, and as a result, then I can serve my clients better. So if you don't serve yourself first and you're just always, you know, giving, 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 you can very much just burn out. So it's almost a case of pulling back, serve myself, recharge, recalibrate, and then I can deliver a far better service for sure. Um, and then once you kind of put all that into the mix, um, got down to the lowest was 69.0 kg on the nose, which is the lightest I've ever been uh, don't say ever been clearly gone was lighter that at some point, but 69 kilos, probably the lightest I've uh, been since ooh, like probably like 16 or 17 year old, uh, if that. So super light, uh, but super lean. Calories were pretty much went down to 1800 on a rest day, 2000 on the training day, and 2200 on a double training day, which on paper actually sounds quite reasonable. But based on my expenditure at the time, um, the deficit was pretty huge, probably like a decent, um, you know, 1,000 to 1,300 calorie deficit uh, on most days just through training, step counts and everything like that, just to try and keep expansion nice and high. So on paper, not too bad, but in reality, the deficit was was pretty meaty for sure. Um, I guess like one of the main sort of stumbling points throughout this uh, initial phase was on the mountain bike, fell off, big sort of cut on my knee, um, and then I couldn't, um, you know, load my lower body for about four to six weeks. Really struggled to walk for the first couple of weeks, so step counts was really down, like maybe two to three thousand steps a day, if that, just hobbling around. So that obviously impacted progress and perhaps delayed it. But again, you just adapt and overcome. Um, obviously, expenditure is going to be lower, so you know, calorie intake has to be lower. If it doesn't, then you have to appreciate that results are going to be a little bit slower as well. What's really important during that time is just to focus on the controllables, you know, control the controllable. Um, okay, falling off your bike, it sucks. It, it's shit. It hurts your ego quite a lot. But 
your circumstances have changed. What can we control to still move the needle in the right direction? It wasn't this kind of fucking mentality and just start, you know, just tanking in loads of food and drink. It was a case of like, okay, we're making good progress. We still want to keep this momentum high. What do we need to do to overcome? And obviously it wasn't any sort of low body loading. There's a lot of upper body work. And then when I could start walking, step counts went up through the roof. Then it's like, okay, you still can't run quite yet. So, or you can't really squat, but you can jump on a walk bike because that's not too irritable. And uh, yeah, it just kind of developed there until uh, it was fully healed and I can actually load properly again. And in terms of like when to kind of pull the trigger on when to stop being in a calorie deficit, because I know sometimes you get into this um, rabbit hole and like more is more and you just keep on chasing it, keep on chasing it. Um, but when we think of um, KPIs, like key performance indicators, uh, the ones I've been working off really is my physical and mental performance, my daily freshness and fatigue, daily energy levels, um, my sleep quality, um, essentially like just well-being, quality of life. And then a big one for me was my food focus. Um, everything was pretty much maintained, like say, going to the gym when uh, lockdown had lockdown one had finished back in the gym, performance was still improving. My key um, targeted indicator lifts were still improving on a weekly basis, still getting strong. Uh, but my food focus was really high and it just came to the point where it's just quite unmanageable. Like I definitely could have pushed through, but not without uh, really compromising the quality of life. So whenever you're in a calorie deficit, you're always going to have trade-offs and compromises. And the ones who can best manage these compromises are going to ultimately get the best results. And for me, you kind of get to the point where, you know, food focus was high. It wasn't just hunger for like physical hunger for my stomach. It wasn't cravings. Is it's kind of hard to explain, but it's kind of this huge overriding desire to eat, like this whole body kind of hunger and food focus is absolutely crazy. So kind of get get got to the point where it's like, right, this isn't really worth it anymore. I probably could push a bit more, but it's probably not worth it. Um, you know, I'm not a bodybuilder, I'm not a physique athlete, I'm not gonna step on stage. I don't really need to put myself through this because ultimately I still needed to have um, really good energy and protect my energy so I can turn up and serve my clients to a very high level. Uh, you know, I can't jump on coaching calls, being a miserable asshole, being really hungry and tired, fatigued, and just not really with it. So when I started compromising, um, yes, overly compromising my food focus, it's like, right, let's pull the trigger. Let's get food back in there. During that time, like, you know, we did sort of implement uh, in her, like, interventions to manage this bit better 24 to 48 hour uh refeeds where you know you got the calorie maintenance for one to two days that kind of worked but it's kind of just putting a plaster of a nuclear bomb you know it didn't really do too much um like i was you're always going to implement your anti-hunger strategies looking at food volume and really trying to maximize how many calories oh sorry trying to maximize how much food you can have for the least amount of calories so all this kind of stuff eating slow, bulking up on veggies, all that kind of stuff. It was, you know, negating hunger, but, you know, it was still there for sure. Um, and generally speaking, the longer you're in a calorie deficit or the leaner you become, the more food focus is going to increase because your body just wants to get you back to that set point. Uh, for me, perhaps that same, same kilo where it's very used to and comfortable to. So that was obviously a, a very huge thing that, you know, it just wasn't worth it in the end. So 
made the decision, pull the trigger, and let's get back up into a um, really big uh, performance phase. So we've kind of entered uh, phase two. So we're about six to seven weeks in. And with that, our body weight has increased. So it's gone basically to 70.5 kilos, so very marginal. Most of um, food increase, sorry, with that, most of our weight increase would be glycogen replenishment, more water associated with that, um, more food in my gut. So generally speaking, body fatness is very, very similar. If not, looking at progress pictures, a little bit leaner. Um, and you probably think like, okay, you've introduced food. How much food have you introduced for that 1.5 kilo increase from the lightest you've been? Uh, so rest days then were 2,400 calories, which again is about right for my body weight, 70 kilo and doing 10,000 steps a day. Single training day is about 2,700 calories at the moment. And then a double training day, which I'll do uh, quite a few times a week. Uh, they're on 3,500 calories. And so, you know, I've literally put, you know, what, 1,200, 1,300 calories into my diet on the double training day, which is pretty massive, uh, 100%. So I think one, uh, say a lot of individuals have after a dieting phase is this fear of if I start eating more, I'm going to gain body fat. And they have this, you know, this like voice in the back of their mind, like don't, in don't increase calories, don't eat more, you're going to gain body fat. And ultimately they just stay in this un underfed calorie deficit state and or calorie restricted state. And, you know, they just um experienced far many far too many compromises and trade-offs uh like 100 and what happens then they do have this moment where food focus does kick them in the ass and uh they end up overeating they end up binging they have these unplanned eating episodes so what i say here is like if you are at your lowest body fat levels at the lowest calorie intake you can 100 bring your calories back up to maintain body weight and body fatness, 100%. You can do that. You don't have to have this fear that you have to keep on restricting calories. A calorie restriction is to get to your end point is not your maintenance point though, okay? So uh, with me, like, like I mentioned, one of my Instagram uh, posts a couple of weeks back, like I would say I have a uh, spendthrift metabolism. So this is essentially, um, shall we say, your hard to gain a fast metabolism. So when I or anybody with this type of um, genotype with their metabolism, when they increase uh, the calorie intake, their metabolic rate will speed up as well to preserve leanness, which is pretty, pretty cool. And when they restrict calories to drop body fat, their metabolism doesn't really adapt and suppress that much so they can maintain a bigger calorie deficit then. Where you got um, the opposite, which is a thrifty metabolism, so for these individuals, they're perhaps coined as having a slow metabolism and everything. Uh, when they try and decrease calorie intake to drop body fat, their body will adapt quite considerably. So if they take 500 calories away, their metabolism may drop down and basically normalize that as calorie maintenance. And likewise, when they increase the calorie intake, their metabolism doesn't speed up um, to kind of burn off this extra energy. So for me, like I'm very much in the case of like a spendthrift metabolism. And um, yeah, we just kind of put in more calories in, more calories in. And it just seems like my um, expenditure is just increasing. And yes, this is going to be slightly through rest and metabolic rate increases, but it's mostly attributed to um, NEAT, so non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is, you know, just like my fidgeting, subconscious kind of movement, 
all that kind of stuff. And there's some research that kind of backs us up as well when they've kind of overfed individuals by about a thousand calories a day, you know, they only stored by 300 of those calories. So with that extra sort of six, 700 calories go, and again, it was attributed to increase in neat, spontaneous moving, fidgeting, all that kind of stuff. And this is very much the case of what's happening with me. And, you know, I'm pretty sure it'll happen with the majority of individuals, but some will um, have a greater impact than others. And I just seem to be one of those individuals where I could just keep on putting food in and I'm maintaining extremely well. Um, and that's why I'm having like 3,500 calories in double training days. And, you know, pretty much touched on 600 grams of carbohydrates on most of my double training days now, which is, which is pretty outstanding. Um, many, many Weetabix and Rice Krispie squares for sure. So just take that in mind. And when we look at, this is just a key learning opportunity here as well, is when we look at um, formulas, calorie goals, all that kind of stuff, it is just a starting point. When you go online searching like resting metabolic rates, how many calories do I need a day, whatever it comes up with when you put in like a height, weight, everything in between, it's just a starting point. Like if I was to put my numbers into this, into these formulas, I probably would be averaging about 2,800 calories a day, but I can eat 3,500 calories a day and maintain my weight because that doesn't take into account individual differences, metabolisms, everything like that. So uh, when we uh, look at these calorie goals, it's just pointing you in the right direction, adhere to the calorie goal, see how you respond, and then adjust accordingly. Now, sometimes, a lot of the times I get asked, um, how many calories do I need to be in or, or how many calories extra do I need to consume, i.e. a calorie surplus to build muscle? You know, is there 200, 300, 500? What should I do? And, you know, the answer is I don't really know because I don't know how your metabolism is going to respond. So I'm theoretically in a 700 calorie surplus at the moment if I go off formulas, but I'm not getting any body weight so or any sort of body fat, should we say. So... Again, use these numbers that you can get from formulas online as a starting point and adjust accordingly. So at the moment, I'm doing uh, five weight sessions per week. I'm doing two runs and I'm doing one mountain bike session, which is about sort of three to 3.5 hours on the weekend. So expenditure has definitely gone up on the mountain bike days. Um, the day before, I'm doing uh, eight gram per kilogram carbohydrate load, which is 560 grams of carbohydrates. Um, then on the mountain bike day itself, I'm basically just run 2,400 calories as a rest day. And then I will use my Garmin then as the guide how many calories I need. So when I look at any form of like activity tracker, Garmin, Apple Watch, Fitbit, they're probably going to be perhaps 20% either way. So what I did initially was, right, if my Garmin said I burnt 2,000 calories, I would essentially eat 80% of those calories back um so again could potentially be 20 percent either way so i do 2400 calories plus 80 percent of the calories expended via my garmin and then how do i respond do i lose weight uh do i maintain weight or do i gain weight at that point in time i was very much uh still you know kind of losing slash maintaining so it's a case of okay let's put some more food in there to really support performance and recovery so now it's on about 100 percent um, of what my garments tell me. So 2,400 calories plus 100%. And that seems to be about right. So for three to 3.5 hour mountain bike uh, ride, whether that's in the Peak District, back in Wales, up in Yorkshire, um, 
I'm looking about sort of a 4,000 calorie day. And with that, the following day, the day after, uh, my recovery seems to be pretty good. Freshness is decent. Um, a little bit of central fatigue, perhaps, but that could just be the accumulation of training throughout the week. But generally speaking, I think I found quite nice balance and quite nice tipping points with everything there. If you were, say, a road cyclist, you can pretty much uh, use your power meter because that's going to be pretty accurate within perhaps 5% either way. In this case, all you will uh, end up doing then is essentially looking at your parameter, whatever it says uh, your kilojoules are, that's a pretty much a one-to-one conversion then. So it's basically all it's doing is converting mechanical energy mechanical energy into uh, metabolic energy as well. So that's a nice kind of system that I use with a lot of athletes, uh, a lot of cyclists, a lot of triathletes, Ironmans and so on, uh, when, they are, when we're working that calorie demand for their training day and therefore how many calories they need off the back of that as well. And for me as well, it's just uh, this period is a case now of performance demands are high, recovery demands are high. I can actually start applying performance-based nutrition, which is pretty incredible. And again, like I said, I can really see incredible results from what I am applying. So also I can see the results I get with clients, with the athletes I work with, but now it's actually experiencing it myself. It's like, oh, wow, fucking hell, this works really, really well let's push this even more because I got more buy-in to the process and my conviction in, shall we say, um, selling this process to individuals um, is going to be far, far greater. One of the things I'm doing on my uh, double training days, if I'm basically doing concurrence-based training, uh, which is weights in the AM, run in the PM. It doesn't really matter too much which way you flip this around. You could do your cardiovascular work in the morning, your weights in the evening, but essentially it's a case of you're doing your weight training under high energy and high carbohydrate availability and your running sessions or your cardiovascular sessions under low energy, low carbohydrate availability, because then we are going to enhance the adaptation from both. Uh, that is the theoretical principle behind this. Anyway, uh, I actually did a dedication to Education Wednesday post on this. I might even do a full podcast on it because it's an extremely interesting topic. Um, but essentially what I was doing or what I am still doing is on a double training day, if I'm on 3,500 calories um, and about sort of 550-ish grams of carbohydrates there, thereabouts, um, I will essentially try and get most of that for breakfast, post-training, and my lunch, maybe a little bit mid-afternoon stack. And then I'll try and do my evening session under low carbohydrate availability. So I'll do my session, um, not put any carbohydrates in during the session, and then recover low. So I'm just having meats and veggies um, just to, again, have um, this increased adaptation um, that you experience from recovering low. And there's some quite nice sort of research out there to suggest that's beneficial. Whether I actually get to the point, uh, or should we say, whether I deplete the muscle to enough of an extent to get this enhanced adaptation and warrant this train low method is going to be quite hard to say, but... Uh, in terms of the way I'm eating is I'm really, really enjoying. Like if you're trying to get, you know, five to 600 grams of carbohydrates uh, before three o'clock in the afternoon, like there's some pretty tasty meals you're going to get in and lots of bagels, lots of Weetabix and everything else in between. So that's like my kind of rationale behind that. And purely from like a preferences standpoint, it works extremely well too. I wake up and I'm pretty ravenous. That's where my appetite is. Um, so I might as well put all my calories in there. Generally speaking, I'm not too hungry in the evening. Um, so 
I don't need to have too much food and therefore I can actually recover low by just having some meat and veggies and I works incredibly well. So I think when you see my food on Instagram, you may be thinking I'm having this amount of food with every single meal, but it's not. I'm obviously periodizing my week. So having different amounts of food and carbohydrates on a different day based on my demands, but then taking one step further and looking at how I'm periodizing my carbohydrate intake within that day. Um, so looking at this, for weight training anyway, this like peri um, workout nutrition strategy of like very much sandwiching the sessions with carbohydrates, your weight training sessions to create this hugely anabolic environment. And then in the evening, then just pulling down uh, carbohydrates and really focus on depleting the muscle to hopefully then drive up uh, an enzyme called AMPK, which increases mitochondrial uh, biogenesis. And if we can have more mitochondria than muscle, which are like the power stations, uh, so to speak, where you can oxidize and metabolize far more fat for fuel, then I'm going to be able to spare more glycogen whilst I'm on the bike and therefore do not hit wall quite as quickly. That's in theory what could happen. Again, whether that is actually happening with me in terms of my training demands, my physiology is you know, hugely up for debate, but in terms of it actually fit my preferences, it's working pretty incredible uh, at the moment. So in terms of like going forward with this, um, it's more of a case of, I don't necessarily have an end goal at the moment. It is a case of let's just keep nudging. Let's see what I can do. Let's keep pushing it. What am I capable of? And I'm sure some kind of um, big events or challenges will present themselves um just so i can really sort of push towards and just accomplish accomplish something quite nice out of this um but that's just basically like an overview of you know phase one and phase two and there's just a couple of um kind of key lessons i want to leave you with so lesson one is you know what is easy to do is easy not to do so compound interest is absolutely key so it's just the small things you do on a daily basis. They're not massive. They're not overly significant. But if you do them consistently over time, they will add up and make a big, big, big change. So these are perhaps your daily non-negotiables. So, you know, something like doing 10,000 steps a day. If you're on 5,000 steps by four o'clock in the afternoon, you know, it's very easy not to go away and do the steps. But it's also very easy to do it as well. Like it's just a case of you putting on your jacket on and get out and do it. If it's raining, you stick a thicker jacket on, you get out and do it. It's just it's just one of those things, you just you just do it, okay? And then this will just compound over time. Tracking your food, that's pretty straightforward. It didn't, you know, you could do it by meal plan, you could do it by my fitness pal, you could do it by writing down in a food diary, you could do it intuitively, completely up to you. But just tracking it in some way, shape, or form. You know. Say, for example, the other day, I ended up training in the kitchen at 10 o'clock at night in the anabolic kitchen. You know, up at 4.30, like I live in Leeds, travel down to Coventry, uh, to Wasps. Big day there, very demanding day. Um, Drive back two and a half hours, check with my clients, make sure they're all good, all up to speed. Hits 10 o'clock is kind of a case of, right, next 45 minutes, do I watch some TV or do I train? It's like, right, compound interest. It's easy to watch TV. It's also easy to pick up a weight and do it. Just get it done. Uh, and that kind of ties into being extremely consistent. Um, again, when you think of this like compound interest kind of mentality, you have to be consistent. Just do the small things on a daily basis because it'll add up over time. The stuff you do now 
is going to pay you forward massively. You don't go to the gym and expect results now. You expect those results in six to 12 months time. That's where transformations really happen. So over the last sort of six months, I've missed zero planned uh, sessions. So all the training sessions I wanted to do and needed to do, I've done every single one. I've not missed a single one. The only ones I have missed is when I fell off my mountain bike and that obviously changed the scenario, but all the ones I had planned, I've done. And there's only been one day over my planned calorie goal. And that's because um, I got given a large Domino's pizza. And to be honest, if you, <laughs> if you put me in a, a, a decent calorie deficit with food focuses high and you give me a large Domino's pizza, it is getting eaten. And that really just kind of, again, confirms that you are a product of your environment. Um, as well, like another sort of key quote here that Joe Parrish kind of uh, sent us the other day is like, you know, do what you said you do. Um, you know, I tell them, like, we come to agreement, oh, this is the training. This is what's going to move the needle in the right direction. So, you know, do what you said you do. I said, I'm going to do this. And if I don't do it, I'm going to look like an asshole. So do what you said you do. Just be true to word and get it done. And then that kind of leads into like that whole mirror test. I know Mark Rhodes talks about this quite a lot. Um, you know, at the end of the day, when you look yourself in the mirror, have you done everything you needed to, to move the needle and make progress? You know, if you look, if I looked at myself in the mirror that day where I watched TV instead of working out, it's like, well, you kind of failed yourself here. Um, you're not going to be progressing at the, the desired rate. So that mirror test is very humbling and very truthful. You can't really hide from it. Did I do my 10,000 steps or, you know, did I just not, just not bother? Did I just go on Netflix and just chill out? You know, this mirror test is incredibly important. You know, protecting my energy was, uh, you know, one of the biggest things as well. So I had to like abolish all low value tasks because obviously and now I'm adding in more training into my week, more traveling, more output. Um, I really need to make sure that I'm protecting my energy so I don't turn up uh, and it can be really run down and miserable as fuck for my clients because that's the last thing they want. So abolish all low value tasks, all the stuff that isn't important that you're doing, they can get rid of. Things like, again, binging on Netflix. Social media for me was a massive one. I just did like a little bit of a, a digital audit and I found out one of the days, I think it was dedication, dedication Wednesday, but on that day, I was on Instagram for an hour and 45. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. We think like we're really busy and we got all this kind of stuff going on. But if you really audit what you're doing, all these low value tasks, you can find time. Is like, okay, that hour 45, all I have to be on Instagram is 30 minutes to do all my marketing, posting, answering questions, all that kind of stuff. The other hour, that could be spent to get out, going for some uh, walks, steps, reading, learning, um, going to the gym, going for a run. So you, if you audit your time, so audit your life, you can find a lot of time uh, very, very easily. And with that, you can have far more headspace and you know you can really protect your energy and show up and turn up and be at your best. And one of the big things for me going forward now is, you know, this quote, uh, availability is an athlete's greatest ability. You know, I'm up training a fair bit now, more than I've ever done in my life. And the only thing that's really going to stop me now is getting ill or getting injured. So I've got to do everything from a lifestyle, training and performance nutrition perspective to make sure I stay injury-free and illness-free, to make sure I'm fully robust so I can complete more of my training sessions and therefore I can progress at a higher rate. It is just getting those reps in. Not necessarily reps within the session, but the 
the whole training rep, so to speak. The more sessions you could get in throughout the course of a year, you know, it's just maths. Like the quicker you are going to progress, assuming you're um, managing your recovery capability and everything is periodized and mapped out accordingly. And that is very much us for today, guys. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in to the Average to Elite Physique Project episode. Hopefully this clarifies quite a few things in terms of why I'm doing and not really just seeing snapshots kind of images on Instagram of you know, eight Weetabix and stuff like that. Uh, you know, it just gives you a little bit more sort of rationale and sort of context to everything. Um, but what I say for um, my main kind of take home from this product so far from a nutrition perspective is seriously, like how much it actually affects performance when your fueling demands are high, your recovery demands are high, and you have to be at your best for every single session. It makes an incredible difference. Um, and, you know, there's far greater athletes than me much higher up the food chain that aren't implementing 10% of what I'm doing. And it's just really going to be impairing their performance and their true potential to a very great extent. So I just kind of leave you with this, um, with this quote. So a good diet won't make an average athlete elite, but a poor diet will make an elite athlete average. So if you are performing at a very high level, you're operating on the highest level and you want to be the best that you can be and you're not even considering your nutrition is an afterthought, you're reactive to everything, then you are really hindering your ability to progress in your career. Um, it can make that much of a difference. I've known this for a long time through the research. I've known this a long time through working with athletes at all levels and now I'm experiencing it myself. It makes a huge, huge, huge difference. So guys, if you have any questions, queries, anything you want to ask me in terms of uh, taking your performance to the next level, reach out, drop me an Instagram DM, and I'm more than happily uh, answer you there. So I hope you, again, you've uh, enjoyed this episode, taken something away from it. I find it pretty uh, therapeutic, just rambling for the last 40 minutes, just reflecting on my um, challenging journey so far. Um, so guys, thank you very much again. I uh, appreciate and value your time as always. And until next time, Goodbye.